Hi, my name is Joy, and this is my brother Isaac, and we'll be reading today's scripture, which comes from Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. Please give your full attention to the reading of God's word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus, uh, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold from now and this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Amen. Now let's, let us give our attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you, Joy and Isaac. Thank you for the reading of God's word. Good morning, church. My name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my honor to bring you God's word today. Before we start, would, I, would you join me in a short word of prayer? Would you bow your heads with me? <clears throat> Lord, every week we get a privilege to worship together. And thank you so much for that honor. Sometimes we forget what a joy it is to meet together, to hear one another sing, to confess our faith, and to meet with you together, uh, Lord, whether it's online or here in person. God, as we now come to your word, may your word truly dwell in our hearts richly, and Holy Spirit may do a good work in us uh, before we leave and continuing even after we leave. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God is good. <laughs> Let's try that again. God is good. All the time. Okay. You know, for those of you who are not familiar with that, it's something that used to be kind of a greeting as we would start worship, and it was something that often was said in many churches. And yet, as we say that, I'm sure there are some people who, out of pressure to recite with others, to say those words, but maybe finds it very difficult to really mean it. Is God good? Is he really good? I mean, in your heart and in your life experience, in your conviction of who God is, is he good? Deep down inside, this question may be asked by many over and over again, especially in times of hardships, 
in times of loss, in times of sorrow, in great pain, and especially those moments when we sit alone after those times. The lingering question may be, is God really good? Is he good to me? What is good? And can I know that he is good? In our text, a young man comes running to Jesus, kneels before him, and asks the billion-dollar question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you would think that Jesus, being a good rabbi and a good teacher, might have said some other things, but he responds with a question, which he often does. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That statement is profoundly true, especially when it comes to eternal life. Good is often in the eye of the beholder. It is the experience that often gives us the qualification of what is good. When you put a medium steak in front of me, it is good. When you put fishy fish in front of me, this is not good. When you put only salad in front of me, this is not good. The common definition of good, however, also relates to morality, being right, being morally good. But here in this text, this particular word good is pertaining to being generous in relationship to goodness and how it fully satisfies or not. As we think about the word good and how to define it, I want us to understand that from a relative human perspective, goodness can be relative to each of us. But if there is an almighty God who created all things, and all things have been given and defined by him, then the very definitions, especially goodness, which is an attribute of God, is absolute, perfect, and unchanging in who God is. And so in our text, I want us to see three things about God's goodness. That God's goodness is seen in a loving confrontation. It's seen in an impossible task. And his goodness is also seen in his grace to give us more. The first thought I want us to see is that God's goodness is seen in this loving confrontation. It's where God's absolute goodness confronts man's relative goodness. You know, for many of us, confrontation is something that is seen as negative, something we don't really pursue. It's undesirable. It's why we avoid conflict. Yet in every meaningful relationship that seeks to go deeper, it is an inevitable reality. And how even more so between a holy God and a world filled with sinners. The loving thing is not to ignore sin or to just focus on the positive, but to deal with it head on in the goodness and the very loving and gentle way that Jesus did. In the first six verses, there is a progression of this loving confrontation. It begins with the respectful approach of this young man. It says that it, he comes, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Later on, we discovered this man had great wealth, great possessions. So we know he wasn't poor. In fact, he probably was a young man of uh, not just wealth, but probably position and stature. For him to run, which is something most 
respectful people in our culture didn't do at the time. And then to kneel in front of Jesus, a position of worship and reverence. And then to ask him this tremendously spiritual question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I believe to his credit that he was probably very genuine. He asked this question probably in the humility of his heart. And yet the response, the loving response of Jesus was something he didn't expect. The loving response Jesus gave was, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he goes on to do what probably most rabbis did during his day, which is to list out some of the commandments. And he says, you know the commandments. And he starts with murder, number six. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. And then he goes back to number five, honor your father and mother. And as we look at this set of uh, commandments that Jesus lists, I want you to understand that I believe Jesus is truly answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response was, remember, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that the answer deals with the fact that only the perfectly good person is worthy of eternal life. You see, the law was given to us to give life, but because of sin, it brought death and condemnation. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes about how sin now leads us to the awareness, uh, the law leads us to the awareness of sin, and we become aware of our inability to actually keep the law. And because we're constantly unable to keep the law, and we break the law on a daily and regular basis, both in heart and in action, that hopefully it would lead us to a place where we are in desperate need of a perfect Savior. And I think this young man, as he comes to Jesus, probably, and this is just my guess, probably might have asked this question to other rabbis. Because as he hears Jesus list off the different commandments, we, keep, we realize that, first of all, he leaves out the first four commandments dealing with our love and devotion to God. He leaves out the 10th commandment of do not covet. Probably rich people don't covet. They're the object of being coveted. And he even adds a statement or a commandment that was not part of the Decalogue, which is do not defraud. And I thought that was a very peculiar, interesting inclusion. Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel of this story and version doesn't include this particular statement, do not defraud. And I think Mark being one of the most, probably one of the first original writings of the Gospels, I believe it was probably, and commentators think of this as probably the most original statements. And other, other Gospels will tell stories in different ways, leaving out certain elements for their own purposes as they tell their stories. But here, Mark includes this statement. And the question is, why did he add this one? Some of, us, uh, some of the commentators believe that it might be a summary of the 8th and ninth commandment, don't steal and don't defraud, uh, don't, uh, don't give false witness, as possibly that option. But whatever the reason, I think perhaps the young ruler was unaware that as Jesus lists these things, that Jesus was starting to do some heart surgery. It was probably what I call the first incision of this surgery. He was not aware, probably, of the fact, and if I were to take a venture a guess, that perhaps he might have included this 
statement of do not defrauding, which meant and referred to a lot of times in the Old Testament, another commandment, to not put false weights in your business so that you cheat other people. Which leads to the third progression of the blindness of sin. Because after Jesus states these, state, uh, these commandments, he says to him, Teacher, I have, these I have kept from my youth. And in, in his response, Jesus exposes something that we will see. But we all have a sense of blindness at times. There's a blind side sometimes to our walk with God. There's sins that sometimes we might excuse or blame others or maybe even don't even realize it as sin. I can admit that there are times when I drive and if someone does something really dangerous or stupid on the road, I say, you idiot, what are you doing? And I didn't realize what I was saying on the road until my kids started repeating it. In the car next to me when they were younger, they would say, you idiot. I'm like, oh my gosh, don't say that. And I realized I just said that. Or how about gluttony? After a meal, you're so full, you're probably close to uh, bringing it all back up. (laughs) And you're like, oh my gosh, I feel like I've committed the sin of gluttony and we laugh. And, and it's not because we want to make light. We're just thankful that we had such a great meal. We ate too much. Or perhaps even some of us, even remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy, that the commandment to remember to take a rest one day out of seven is something sometimes some of us don't do. And still others, there are very well-known sins that we know are wrong, but we keep around like pets And we take it for granted that God will forgive us because we know that we love this sin. We enjoy this sin and we keep it around with no intention of ever undoing this sin. And this is some of the struggles that people live in on a daily basis. Whether it's an addiction or things that they know are wrong. It's a waste of time and yet we keep it around and then we say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. As if there is a sense with which we hold on to it more than we do anything else. And we don't realize that sometimes these sins blind us and keep us from drawing closer to the God who saved us and gave his son for us. And so Christian, I want to ask you, is there something in your heart that you love that competes with your love and devotion to God? Why haven't I groan. What, what is hindering me from drawing closer to him daily? Well, the progression finishes here as the precision of a gentle heart surgeon goes deep into his heart that only Jesus and God can do. Jesus' response was not judgment or to embarrass this man about his statement, I've kept these since I was a boy. Instead, out of love, he does, some, he does some surgery and exposes the cancer of this young man's heart. And, he sa- and, it, and it says in verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The young ruler's response helps us to see what Jesus saw. In the following verse in 22, it says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, the small g God of this young man's heart 
was his great wealth, his possessions. And although he thought he truly wanted eternal life, when push came to shove, what he really loved, what he really wanted, was his wealth. Earthly riches and heavenly glory. Wouldn't we want that as well? Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that you can't be rich and be a Christian. It's really the question of, is there a competing God of your heart that continues to challenge your love and devotion to the true and living God? The heart has room for only one God. There's no room for competing gods. And God Almighty says very clearly that he will not share his glory with another. And that's why God, Jesus says in the New Testament, you cannot serve both God and money. You will love the one and despise the other. And so out of his love for this young man, Jesus gives him the offer of a lifetime to follow the greatest teacher that ever walked the face of this earth, God himself in human flesh for a period of time on earth. He gives this man the great opportunity to be one of his disciples and his answer was no. And for many of us who understand now in context who Jesus is, we might think, oh, what a missed opportunity. How could you say no to Jesus? But let's not be too quick to judge. There's so many times in our lives, as, even as Christians, where we wake up on a daily basis, say yes to social media, yes to texting, yes to our emails, yes to all these different things, and we forget Jesus. We forget to spend time with him. I don't say this to guilt rid you. I, I say this to remind us that these constant battles with things that matter too much to us rather than he who is the most, we say, the greatest love of our life is constantly a challenge. And so for the rich young ruler, he couldn't accept Jesus' call. He couldn't accept the call to follow him because he had great possessions. And what Jesus said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you will be rich in heaven. And he says, come follow me. You know, when we receive a call to trust in Jesus, the question is, what gods do we renounce so that we could confess him as our true and living God? In 1995, I took my first trip to India. India is a land of many millions of gods through the religion of Hinduism. And so when a person becomes a Christian and is baptized, it is a public profession of faith where people in the community would witness this baptism and this conversion. And it meant that they were leaving their Hindu faith of multiple gods and confessing a new faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. It meant excommunication from family, social groups, friends groups, and even the possibility of losing your job and future promotions because you will be marked as a Christian. In many different parts of the world, this is a reality when you confess Jesus Christ and are baptized in his name. Trusting in Jesus meant the changing of gods for the true and living God. And with decision and baptism, came great consequences. And when I returned home, I wondered what God or gods do we renounce before we come to trust in Jesus Christ? I mean, I don't recall any time 
that even I myself, when given an evangelistic call, said, trust in Jesus Christ. And as you do, whatever governed and ruled your life, put it aside so that Jesus may be King and Lord. In our Western culture, we know for a fact there are many idols in our culture. But imagine in a Hindu culture or a Muslim culture or a Buddhist culture that if a person says, I believe in Jesus Christ, I want to believe in Jesus, but I also want to keep my old faith as well. I believe we as pastors and teachers and Christians, we would say, no, my friend, you, you mis- you're mistaken. We're not asking you to believe also in Jesus. We're asking you to believe solely in Jesus. And so the confession to call Jesus Christ is also to call him Lord and King, and there is no other. Similarly, this rich young ruler had a God in his heart to which Jesus addressed in the summary of the first four commandments of the the Ten Commandments, saying, your love for God is not present because it's taken up with another thing. You lack one thing. I want to be clear, salvation is not by works. What Jesus did by telling this man to go sell everything he has and give to the poor and come follow him is not a prescription for salvation. What Jesus was doing was heart surgery and saying, look, there is another God. If you're going to follow me, if you want eternal life, the God must change. The gospel does not teach that we need to do something. The gospel teaches that Jesus did all that we needed. And yet here, one of the questions is, has there been a clear renunciation of whatever used to govern my life to allow the one who is truly Lord and King to become that in my life? I believe there are some people who have made that decision to confess Jesus Christ, that he died for their sins and rose again. But I wonder if they've also made that other decision that he becomes Lord of my life. Imagine if this rich young ruler came to any church in America and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We'd be like, wow, that's great. Believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins, which is probably similar to this idea of the gods. And as we, as we call him, he said, do you want to believe in Jesus? And he'll say yes and all this stuff. And yet there are things that we don't know that are going on in the hearts of men and women and, and teens and youth and children to which men cannot know. Only God knows. The difficulty of following Jesus wholeheartedly isn't for lack of understanding that he died for our sins and rose again. But it's probably the presence of this continuing uh, presence of an idol or idols that we have never really recognized or even renounced. You know, before coming to Jesus, many of us, if there was a definition of that small g God, it was me. I was the God of my own life. And in our culture, it is me. I determine what's good for me. I determine right and wrong. I determine what is, what is good and valuable and worth living for. And as we renounce these things and confess that God's definition of good, God's de- definition of life is my definition, that this, this is that decision to not just believe, but to follow. 
You cannot follow someone you don't really trust in. And you can't say you trust him if you're not following. And so our initial faith in Christ will be challenged and tested on a daily basis to ignore or forget the one who gave himself for us. We all come to Jesus on a daily basis with the idols of our heart. And we aren't just aware of some of the idols at times. And sometimes God's spirit provokes our heart like a heart surgeon. And he speaks to us tenderly. You need to let that go. Dear friend, is there something God's Holy Spirit has been convicting your heart? This is not good. This is not right. You need to let that go. Sometimes it's the dream future of my life. I dream of a marriage. I dream of having a family. I dream of success. I dream of long life. And anything that keeps that from me is not good. You know, one of the things I told Jesus when I really made a commitment to believe and follow him is as I said, I remember at this retreat, I said, I will be a pastor. I will be a deacon. I might even be an elder for you, but I will not be a missionary. Don't make me a missionary. And I want to tell you right now, don't tell God what he can't do. <laughs> for the next 10 years, I went out on missions. Every summer, whether I liked it or not. And every year the question was, Jimmy, will you go wherever I send you? And for the first several years, my answer was no. Because I was afraid that he might make me suffer. I was afraid that he might make me go somewhere where I would hate it for the rest of my life. And I would just be bitter and eat things like fishy fish and salad all the days of my life. And I thought he would make me live in a culture that I despised or, or I didn't like. And, and I just thought, oh, I just can't say fully yes to him because I didn't trust in his goodness. Until I finally realized and submitted. I said, you know what? I can, I can live anywhere. I can eat anything. I, I, by that time, I probably had. And I said, you know what, Jesus? Even if I die a single man alone, I will not be. So wherever you send me, I will go. And that's when the question stopped. There are a lot of things in our life that we're afraid. You trust that God loves you to send his only son, but you don't trust that whatever he's doing in your life is really good. You're afraid he might take a loved one. You're afraid you may never get married. You're afraid of so many things that you know is good, you see as good, but you're afraid God won't. And I'm here to tell you, and I hope you understand this, that as we look to him, he has so much more. Which leads us to this second point. We see God's goodness with an impossible task. That God's perfect goodness to save and man's incomplete goodness to save himself. It says in verse 23, Jesus says how difficult it is it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus didn't say how impossible it is, but how difficult. 
And in verse 24, he says, the disciples were amazed at his words, and he repeats himself. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the response by the disciples, they were exceedingly astonished. That means they were greatly overwhelmed. They were so overwhelmed by his statements, they said, then who can be saved? And that's when Jesus says in verse 27, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Salvation by the hands of men, by their own merit, by their own works, by their own effort is impossible. You will never be good enough to merit eternal life. But God did what was impossible by sending the perfect good person. The impossible task of salvation was completed when God sent his only son. This is the trust that you and I have put in. This is to whom we sang and is worthy of our praise on a weekly basis because that is what he did. His perfect goodness was manifested in the person of his Jesus Christ that he sent to be that perfect good in our, in our place. And so the comfort of this impossible task is that if God loved us as a good God who gave his only son, how would he then keep other good things from us? If he would give heaven's best, if he would give his very son to you, how would he then cheat you out of all the different things that would be truly good? Salvation is a decision, and then it is lived out in life's experience where we call the word discipleship a lifelong journey. But that journey is not into some abyss of the unknown eternal. That journey is, I believe, closer and closer to the person of Jesus Christ. God is calling all of us to journey with him in this living of life eternal, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he had sent. And so every experience you experience is for that very purpose, to come to know him and Jesus Christ whom he had sent. Along the path, this meant for some of the disciples, imprisonment, exile, and even their very lives. In today's culture, it means that there are days and times when simply put, we must make room for God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people, adults, teens, where they said, you know, I'm just so busy. I just don't have time for God. And let's be very honest. That's a lie. We all make time for the things that are important to us. Whatever we forego to trust Jesus and follow him, our God, our good God, would not leave us in the deficit. And that is why God's goodness not only confronts us lovingly and accomplishes the impossible task for us, but thirdly, we see God's goodness to give us more. The goodness of God is more than man's unsatisfying pursuits. There are many who have lost family, friends, possessions, for the sake of following Christ and the gospel. And Christ's promise 
is that following him will not leave you with less but more. Peter began in verse 26, 28 by saying to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundred times in this life, in this time, houses, mother, brothers, sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. Notice that inclusion. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, what Jesus promises is that if you follow him, you're not going to lose. You're actually going to gain so much more. That's the hardest thing to trust in his goodness. That following him is actually the best decision possible. Thank you for eternal life, but please don't interfere with my dreams and hopes for the future. Because you see, I know what good is. And your good sometimes is not so good. I differ with you. In my 40 plus years of walking with Jesus... Yes, there have been sacrifices along the way. But may I confess to you today, I am not someone who's lost. I've gained so much. Treasures you cannot buy with money. Can God replace loved ones? In my trip to Thailand, we got a chance to sit down with some Christians at Campus Crusade for Christ at the University of Bangkok. As, we were, as these college students were interacting with these other college students, we asked them, so like, you know, like, where's your family? And they said, oh, you know, they're over there, but we're no longer accepted by them. We said, what do you mean? Well, once we became Christian and we got baptized, we're no longer accepted in our family. We've been, we've been excommunicated. I said, what? Like, that, I couldn't wrap my head around that. Like, so who do you live with? They said, we live with each other. This is our family. And I said, you got to be kidding me. You're lying. I, I wanted to say you're lying. But they were so happy. They weren't sad. They weren't crying. They were saying it with a smile. And I just thought, what is wrong with you? And over and over again in different cultures, I met Christians who had forsaken things, people, family, possessions to follow Jesus. Even, even lost jobs, even lost promotions because they were deemed and marked as Christians. And I know, with a, I know for a fact that with the smiles on their face, they don't regret their decision. They know what they've lost, but they also know what they've gained. And I want to tell you, my brothers and sisters, all of us who live in the wealth of America, that it's hard to let go of these things, to see the true beauty of the person we call our Savior and Redeemer. I remember when I was young, I thought about following Jesus or trusting Jesus should be at my deathbed because following Jesus is boring. They can't go to parties. They can't do this and that. So I just thought, you know what? I'll just live out my life and then at my deathbed, I'll say, I believe in you, Jesus Christ, and then hopefully go to heaven. I know there are a lot of people who think, yeah, I think the Bible and Jesus is probably true, but man, I don't want to live like you guys. So uh, I'd rather just live it up, and then on my deathbed, I'll receive Christ. I had it all backwards. Everything that we might ever pursue to think that might bring us goodness of happiness and joy and fulfillment, 
Do you know anyone who has enough? Do you? Do you know any billionaire that has enough money? Do you know anyone who's rich that has enough cars or enough houses or enough possessions? I don't. I don't know anyone who says, you know what? Man, I'm done. I am so fulfilled and complete. I have, however, met Christians who truly say, I'm done. I'm good. If you're in that place of constant pursuing, I want to invite you to a person who could fill you in a way that nothing in this world could ever fill. Christian, if you're struggling to grow, if you're constantly finding your days feeling so distant from God, invite him to search your heart to see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. A few suggestions. You're going to hear me say this over and over again. Whenever I get a chance to preach, I'm going to mention these things. So I hope it doesn't become repetitive, but hopefully a reminder. I want to encourage you to sit and listen to your Lord speak through his word. Daily. Daily, my heart needs to remember who is God. Who is daily my God. Two, as you sit in his word, if a conviction comes about sin, repent quickly. Don't just sit there and start to excuse and say, but it's someone else. If this person didn't say that or do that, then I wouldn't. Just say, Lord, it is true. It is sin. No matter what happens, it is wrong in your sight. I agree with you. I confess it and help me to have the strength to live differently. And no matter what, in circumstances or life, good or bad, remember he is always good. And make every effort in your life through community, through worship, And through your personal times, as well as with your loved ones, stay close to him daily. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I don't know if that rich young ruler ever came to Jesus again or not. All I know is that Jesus will meet you in the midst of those places that only you go, only we go, and maybe it's secret and shameful and dark, but he will meet you there and say, will you give that up? Will you come follow me? I want to encourage you to put your trust in this good God because he loves you enough to confront the sin. He loves you to take care of the impossible task, and he loves you not to give you less, but more. And my dear brothers and sisters, may I say, whatever more he may give is given so that you may know the giver and not just dwell in the blessings of what was given. And so again, I say to you, my brothers and sisters, God is good. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much for a call to follow you, a call many of us received many years ago, some recently. That call was the most wonderful decision we had ever made. 
It was a call to truly understand who is God and to love and follow you all the days of our life. And God, for those who have still yet to make this decision, who are yet still struggling, would you meet with them and still give them a call to come and follow you, to trust in you, to walk with you all the days of their life. As we partake of this Lord's Supper, we remember, Lord Jesus, the incredible and impossible task for us, but was possible by you and you alone. May your goodness continue to resound in our lips through praise, and may your goodness continue to be testified through the gospel and through the Lord's table. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.